Hey everyone, we are talking about visual effects, we're talking about workflows, and we're dipping our toes into AI. Let's do it. Hi there, welcome back to Behind the Pixel. My name is Will. My name is Catherine. And this is the podcast where we try to bridge the knowledge gap between those who buy creative content and those who make it. We've been running Open Pixel Studios for about seven years now in February. Um, That's right. And clearly this is boring. Yeah, this is is a (laughs) boring topic for Catherine. We've done it so many times. Like we've said the thing. Yeah, we have done it so many times. Yeah. You You get used to the flow. Jeremy Brown is one of the senior instructors and a digital animation program director at the University of Colorado in Denver. One of my old friends, colleagues, yeah. I would say. We worked together in, in Boston. We also went to school together. I, I think I spoke it at his in his class last year. I think this year we're speaking uh, together, uh, Catherine and I, Gosh. Uh, this year. What are, what are we going to do? That's just an interesting uh, connection to have. You know, he's sort of in between all these uh, things that are happening. Are you know, AI, VFX, education in this realm. Mm -hmm. So it it was really interesting hearing him talk about it in terms of those particular um, perspectives. Yeah, he had really interesting insights, and I I don't want to really delay it any further. But um, there's also a a great movie that you should all watch that uh, we'll learn about throughout this. Right. Yes. <laughs> I have not seen this movie. I just want to. I want to preface that I've. You haven't actually. I oh, haven't. Okay. But I now I plan to because ah, okay. I know now that I know that that someone worked on it. Gotta go show that support. Right. Right. You know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we dipped the toes in into AI a little bit. We we had a little bit of that discussion. We describe what visual effects is. We throw around some terms that you might have heard but never really kind of knew about discussed. Um, so we talk about those. If you're a VFX artist or a student or or an artist in general, I think you might find this conversation interesting. If you're on the marketing side, the sort of buying side, I think you might also find it interesting. We we tried to tackle some some of the issues that happen when when you create. VFX for the purpose of storytelling. Mm-hmm. So I think that was some good line of questioning. Yeah, but yeah, without further delay, let's um let's jump into it and introduce Jeremy Brown. Yeah. Hey Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us. Hello, Will. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for being here. Oh, hi there. <laughs> so you are the senior instructor and digital animation program director at the U. C Denver institution. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. For those of you not familiar with how academia works, you know, there's like people who do research and people who teach and there's crossover, of course. My role is is exclusively teaching. So I teach four courses per semester. And uh, I also have some administrative responsibilities, and that's I'm the program director for the digital animation major. Yeah, what I do is, aside from the teaching, is I just kind of manage the nuts and bolts of the program, making sure students know what classes they're supposed to be taking, doing the schedule, 
giving tours, kind of helping prospective students and transfer students come in and out and other, you know, random things. I'm kind of like, you know, the buck stops with me kind of person until something is above my pay grade and then the buck stops <laughs> with my boss. So <laughs> right, yeah, right. it's definitely way different set of skills than what I spent most of my career doing which is I'm sure we'll get to, which is as a, as a digital compositor in the visual effects industry. But I have to say, I really, really enjoy it. I really enjoy teaching. Mm. It's very rewarding. And yeah, it's just, it's a blast. Um, I hope you don't mind my cat in the background. I just We realized. love kitties. No. Oh, please. Okay. This is great. Cats are always welcome here. <laughs> okay, I'm going to be distracted for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> No, no, I'm going to, I've, we've been talking about on our travels, we're going to manifest a cat into our like lives in some way and it's going to be delightful. Nice. So okay. this is just one more, one more aspect of that. Cool. cool. <laughs> so let's, let's start with a little bit of credibility as to your experience. Cause I think you have a, like a really big background. I couldn't get through all the films that you've worked on uh, in the past. So just for our audience who doesn't, who might not know you, can you tell us a little bit about what kind of work you used to do before you started teaching at UC Denver? Sure. So yeah, I worked as a, as a digital compositor for about eight or nine years uh, mostly for a company called Zero VFX in Boston. I also worked before that for Brickyard VFX, also in Boston. I actually lived in Boston for my <laughs> all my career. Somehow yes. managed to to not move to to LA or Vancouver or anything mm. like that. Mm-hmm. At the beginning, I was I was a rotoscope artist, and I did a lot of kind of generalist hard surface CGI stuff. I eventually became a compositor, but my CG experience always kind of like stayed with me. And I was always kind of, I had my, my toe in both ponds for a lot of, of my career. And yeah, most of my work was on, on feature films, right? So some of the, the highlights are uh, Patriot's Day is kind of the last film mm-hmm. that I ended up working on. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was in oh, uh, 2016, I believe. American Hustle was another one that I really enjoyed working on. Nice. Also, a lot of Kevin James films like Paul Blart Mall Cop 2, stuff nice. like that. <gasps> no, <laughs> yeah. we must talk about this. Oh, that's amazing. Okay, I'm, t- I'm tabling that for the end of the discussion because mm. that, that sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> Good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the first film I ever worked on was a, a film called The Proposal. That was in 2008. With Sandra Bullock and Ryan Reynolds. That movie has a special place in my heart because it was like, yeah, yeah, my very first experience working professionally in visual effects. So that was pretty cool. Um, otherwise, a lot, a lot of commercials. So we we worked with advertising agencies like Arnold Worldwide on advertising campaigns for like McDonald's, Subway. Subway was a big, big client of ours. I worked on a ton of Subway commercials, Dunkin' Donuts. Um, Ocean Spray, uh, kind of regional brand. Well, uh, world, right, national, right. worldwide. Anyway, um, they're yeah. <laughs> I always think about Ocean Spray because they're like on Cape Cod in, in Massachusetts. Yes, yes. <laughs> cool. So um, before we move forward, I think you said a couple of terms there that usually, you know, our artists listeners will probably pick up really quickly. They're just like, sure. oh, yeah, no problem. But there are some folks on the agency side, on the marketing side who probably don't 
really know what you're talking about, even though they're doing some of the work <laughs> with you <laughs> sure. or used to on, on those types of things. So you, the one I picked up was rotoscope. I just want to sure. make sure we, yeah. we define that for folks. So how would you define rotoscope? Sure. Rotoscoping, the term comes from like traditional animation. Nowadays, it's really kind of changed a little bit. So rotoscoping is tracing, right? Rotoscoping involves mostly by hand, but but tracing, like if it was me, right? I'll just go around like this. Mm -hmm. Tracing out elements in live action footage for the purpose usually of extracting those elements from their background and placing them in some other background, right? So what you would normally think of as like a green screen or blue screen kind of process, rotoscoping is that process, but manually. So if we wanted to extract me from my basement, uh, we would need someone to rotoscope me, trace, not necessarily every frame, but because uh, the computer fills in the blanks a lot, but trace me out of that of, of my background um, awesome. manually. Yeah. yeah, no, that's great. And most people I think understand with apps and stuff like that, like removing someone from a background these days is like kind of second nature to folks, broadly speaking. So great, thank you for defining that. The other term that I picked out was compositing. Sure. I was a compositor. I also worked at Zero VFX. You're a compositing folk. So let's, let's kind of define that for folks too. Sure. Yeah. Compositor, uh, digital compositor. My job is to basically combine media, moving still, moving or still live action or computer generated. Any visual media is composed, right? And my job was to do so in a visually seamless way, right? A live action compositor is taking different pieces of, again, either live action, computer generated, or still images, imagery, and making sure they look completely real, as if the final image had been captured by a camera. Rotoscoping and, and green screens are, you know, part of the compositing process, right? So, you know, whether you're using a green screen or whether you're relying on rotoscoping, the, the goal is the same, right? You're trying to make someone or some object appear in a different environment or different place than where it was originally captured, right? Green screens are great for kind of handling things in a little bit more of an automated way, but sometimes it is more advantageous to just rely on, on rotoscoping for a few different reasons. But mainly, you know, if you don't want like a green glow <laughs> on your talent mm -hmm. or a blue glow if it's a blue screen, then, you know, you might decide just let's let's have it be rotoscoped, right? So you get kind of more natural lighting and stuff like that. Or sometimes you didn't plan for it and you need to rotoscope. And right. Yeah. right. And so those are just two different approaches from extracting yes. something. Yeah. yeah, but I think this is, and I'll kind of bring it back sort of 30,000 foot view here, but it, this is helpful to show, especially to folks who are like not involved on on the creative side of the industry here but hire creatives to understand how in depth this goes and how like how granular you can get to a certain role within a, a specific sure. job of one creative task so it's definitely helpful to hear all of that tends to fall under this sort of umbrella of visual effects and i know that we've even heard our clients use the term kind of loosely on and off and Sometimes it's used in commercials, sometimes it's in films, sometimes it's in games, and like it's sort of this all-encompassing thing. And so I'm wondering if you can kind of give a high, you know, a high-level view of like 
what is VFX? So, uh, you know, somebody who is a marketer, somebody who's looking to get animation or something done for live action, how do they know the difference? No, that's a great question. Um, I always like, <laughs> you know, our parents, when they talk to their friends about what, what, what we do like my mother's always like oh he's he does computers you know he does <laughs> motion <laughs> graphics things yeah and i always just smile along and say yep yeah, uh-huh yep yeah. um, <laughs> but yeah visual effects i mean sometimes i like to talk about visual effects in terms of what they are not right so visual effects are not motion graphics Motion graphics, you know, is when you have kind of a more illustrated or, you know, two-dimensional kind of imagery moving across a screen that's that's animated typically. They're also not special effects, right? Special effects are things that happen in front of a camera. So when you have, you know, some somebody on set blowing something up, right? That's a special effect or stunt doubles or or, you know, stunt wires and things like that. Those are special effects. Um, so visual effects are are any kind of visual manipulation of imagery that happens after that imagery has been captured or generated, right? Mm -hmm. So for the most part, those things are are meant not to be noticed. Again, which is a, opposed to um, motion graphics or or other kind of imagery like that, where you're consciously supposed to see that they're there, right? like lower thirds on broadcast TV, like those banners that right, they have right. on the bottom with titles and stuff like that, right? The skill set is similar, right? Like I know how to do things like that, but it's a different, you know, specialty, right? Visual effects are, are things that are meant to be perceived as real, but are happening after the imagery has been captured. Right. So it seems like time is a big Time seems like a big factor here. Like special effects is within yeah. the, the time frame that you have when you're shooting. Right. Visual effects is after that time period. And yep. you're typically you're saying that you're you're trying to basically fix what you couldn't do in real life. Yeah, in, it's not in the digital it's not necessarily world. always a fix. Right. Typically uh, that's a big, big use case of visual effects. I would say, I'm not going to even try and give it a percentage, but a, but a very healthy <laughs> amount of the work that I used to do, especially on commercials, was fixing mistakes. Um, mm. I always love to use the the kind of well-known example of the coffee cup that got left on the Game of Thrones set and it made mm. it into one uh, of the yes. episodes. They've, mm. I'm sure they've mm -hmm. since fixed it. Um, but I'm sure we could find screenshots somewhere on the internet, but like, yeah, that kind of thing where, yeah, like a water bottle is left on the set of a Western, or we mentioned, I think before we started recording, like, uh, fixing like a booger or something on somebody's face. Um, dandruff, dandruff on the, on the, uh, yeah, dandruff, oh, right. Yeah. Fixing, <laughs> getting rid of dandruff, all kinds of things like that. Um, just things that people didn't notice when they were doing the photography, so it can definitely be a kind of save your butt kind of tool, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, shoot, we forgot that thing where it'd be really expensive to do a reshoot to get all that equipment, all those people, all that talent back in the same place to do it again, right? Whereas a visual effects artist can maybe take out that water bottle in an afternoon, you know? Yeah, you bring up a good point here because I think that there's this this sort of balance between like on the opposite side of that, if you're saying that, you know, I'm I'm somebody who's going to go film and I'm maybe because I know of VFX's capabilities 
maybe I'm not paying attention to that checklist of things that I have to pay attention to because uh, our audience has heard this multiple times now. We can fix it in post and it'll be great. <laughs> um, so how do you how do you sort of balance that in terms of being, you know, making sure that a client would still have all of the tools that they need on set to be able to do the things that they need to do and help remind them? Because I think a lot of times when when we get visual effects work, it always comes after mm-hmm. all of the discussions have been had and all of the like due diligence or like the contingency plans are out the window. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious, what would be like the ideal workflow there? Is it like should visual effects artists get involved in the process way early on so that there isn't this idea of like everything can be more lenient because we'll fix it in post? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I'm obviously biased, but I, I believe that that a visual effects person, if not a supervisor, then just someone with practical experience is always useful early on in the process to help, you know, lay people, for lack of a better term, understand what they're getting into. Even if you think you're just doing something really simple or something that shouldn't need visual effects, it's still usually always a good idea to at least talk to somebody so you know you know that your assumptions aren't based on, on myth, right? Or misconceptions. I always, like the example I love to give is when people want to film monitor or TV screen or, you know, some kind of screen with imagery on it, a lot of folks will, or like a phone, right? That was, we did a lot of phone commercials, right? A lot of folks will think, oh, I need to make the phone green in order Mm. to put something in it, right? I totally understand why people would think that was the right thing to do. And sure enough, you know, sometimes that might be a valid choice, but most of the time in my experience working on that practically, if you want it to look real, it's much, much better to leave the screen off and let it be dark. Mm-hmm. And that way you can actually have the phone ref- uh, capture those reflections, right? You know, next time you're looking at your phone, which for anyone today is probably in the next five seconds. <laughs> probably right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Move the phone around in your hand and you'll see, you know, yes, you see the stuff on the screen, but you also see the reflection. Yeah, there you go. The reflection of the environment around you, right? Now, if you have a big, bright green thing, right, whether it's like green pixels because you have a big green picture on the phone projecting out, or if you like tape on uh, a, you know, a green piece of paper that isn't reflective, right, you lose those reflections and it becomes harder, if not impossible, to capture those to place them back on top of whatever imagery you want, right? So that's a good example of where, you know, a misconception can really affect not only the quality of the end result, but even the cost, right? Because it might take more time to rebuild or, or fabricate that, right? And you might think like, oh, that's not important to me. But, you know, we've all seen visual effects in movies and commercials where it just stands out, right? Where you're looking at the experience, you're, you're seeing the, the film, and then all of a sudden a really bad VFX shot comes up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and cats, like, cats comes to mind. I don't cats, know. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. right. cats. Anyway, it breaks the cats. fourth wall. It takes you out of the experience, right? Yeah. So no matter what story you're trying to tell and no matter what effect you're trying to achieve, that's also one of the primary goals of visual effects is to maintain that fourth wall. You don't want to take your viewer out of that experience. Mm. Yeah, I'm, 
I'm also curious there, like, do you feel like in what you were just talking about, I'm I'm curious how you feel VFX's role within storytelling is applied. Like, do you feel like it's, you know, we, we've talked about this before when we've, we've talked about other um, stages of production where we've talked about sound, where sometimes in the client world, sound can be seen as sort of the like aftermath or like a finishing touch. And so I'm kind of curious if there's like a misconception around visual effects there in terms of its storytelling capability. Sure. Well, I think I think the the place that visual effects has in in the image making pipeline kind of falls into two main categories. I like to think of them as so what we were just talking about that style, that kind of, of visual effects. I like to call those mimetic visual effects, where you're trying to reproduce reality, right? You're trying to mimic the real world um, or what the real world very well might look like, right? And that serves the storytelling process for that, for that reason, right? Where it's not breaking the fourth wall and you keep the viewer immersed in the story, in the world that you're trying to present, right? Then there's there's kind of spectacular visual effects. That's that's my other word for that other category of things. And that's the stuff that, you know, you know your audience is going to understand that it's not real. But mm. it still looks like a seamless part of the image, right? It's still embedded mm. into this kind of photographic reality that you're presenting to the audience. Things like that are, are things like, you know, Thanos in... In Marvel movies, I was right? just thinking about Thanos. Yeah. We know he's not real, right? <laughs> what? <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Hold on. I need to process. <laughs> yeah, or like spaceships in Star Wars. You know, your, your audience is going to understand on an intellectual level that those things are not real, right? And so the goal of the visual effects artist, or, or team rather, I should say, is to present those fantastical elements as if they were real, right? So they become a spectacle, right. Right. I think when the last episode of season one of The Mandalorian came out, everybody was talking about how they digitally reproduced Mark Hamill instead of right. the, you know, the mm -hmm. episode. Right. Spoiler. Mm -hmm. Jesus. Oh, shit. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm here. <laughs> I've seen I've seen it. No, I've seen it. <laughs> yeah. We'll put a we'll little, put a little like, disclaimer edit, no, at the, the beginning. Yeah, yeah. We'll fix that in post. It'll be fine. <laughs> But, you know, that's that's kind of what I'm getting at is like it's a spectacle. It's uh, more than it was meant to be encountered as reality. Right. People understood. Right, right. People knew that, like, that's not really Mark Hamill. That's a digitized younger version of him. Right. right. Um, but it was still effective. It got the job done. It told the story. And um, um you know, maybe we could have a meta discussion about whether it broke that meta fourth wall. But, you know, if you're watching it, it tells the story. Right. right. So let's move. Yeah. Let's shift gears a little bit. You know, part of the reason we still put on this podcast is so that we teach folks what they should know before they get to the door of buying these things, of hiring a creative team, of getting yeah. these this work done. Typically, there are some issues when you just don't have that that particular knowledge set you go in you buy something and things might change in the middle because of something that you asked for or something that you didn't realize would like would take longer than whatever so i want you to put yourself in sort of the client producer shoes like what should they know before they start a production 
that will require VFX? And and are there like things that they could avoid or prepare for before they get there? Yeah, you know, I think I might be saying things that, you know, producer folks probably already know. Things like if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. <laughs> um, reserve money in your budget for later, right? Don't assume that everything's going to go well and have some left over in case you need to spend a little more to fix those mistakes that you didn't anticipate. Um, mm. Things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I like to think of visual effects supervisors as as general contractors, right? So like if you've ever gotten your kitchen or bathroom redone or something like that, you know, you can absolutely hire all those, the plumber, the electrician, the floor person, the the HVAC person, the appliance person, you can hire all those people yourself and you can schedule them and you can coordinate between them, right? But that's kind of the role of a visual effects supervisor is that point person who can kind of, they're the, they kind of have their fingers in every single pie, right? So they know right. what's what, uh, they know what they can anticipate, they can coordinate between people, they can assign responsibility without having to, to think about it too hard. And they'll know costs too. They'll know what's reasonable and what's not, right? Uh, a big area that always kind of gets confused is whether or not you know a piece of footage or a shot in a film or commercial will need 2D or 3D tracking. So just real quick, 2D tracking is tracking the motion of an element on the 2D image plane, uh, two-dimensional image plane, right? So you can extract its X, Y coordinates and its motion to move something, again, kind of on that two-dimensional plane. And sometimes, and a lot of times, that's enough to kind of mimic the motion of something that's going on in the in the footage right but a lot of times especially for camera motions that involve a complex movement or a rotational or revolution type movement like a, like an orbit like an orbit around an object right yes that's yeah. kind of going like this right, yeah right. those shots typically require a three-dimensional track which is uh, much more complex and the end result of that is you end up with a virtual camera that mimics the motion of the camera in in real life, right? So then you can put three-dimensional objects in front of it that move and appear as if they're in the physical space along with everything else, right? So the reason I bring that up is because a lot of times people don't know which one they need and they might assume that they can get away with a 2D track or they think they need a 3D track when they really don't need one, right? It can kind of go either way. And if you're kind of trying to make that call on your own without, you know, the expertise, then you risk maybe spending too much or or not spending enough, right? Because right, right. those skills, especially the 3D tracking skills, are often kind of they're subspecialty, right? Like if if I was a plumber, I'm not going to touch the electrical stuff, right? Mm. Even though they're both pipes, right? <laughs> so that's kind of, or or actually like for real I'm going through this right now like there are some plumbers who don't touch drains I didn't know that uh, right they're all pipes oh, to me right <laughs> right yeah right. so that's my biggest advice is like a, a visual effects supervisor might seem like a, a an extravagance or a luxury but they can really end up helping you make sense of what you really need and what you don't need mm. nice. yeah that's that's a really great analogy I th- Oh, go ahead. Will. No, no. I, 
I, I think it's, it's great that you're breaking it down sort of in layman's terms. Like there's this other person there that is going to help guide you. Hopefully they have the expertise and, yeah. and know, yes. know the tools well enough. I, I keep thinking about the tools as they are changing so rapidly. And I hate to move this conversation into this realm, but just today I saw, <laughs> but here, here we, we go. go. I'm going to do it. Just today I saw what 62,000 jobs is estimated to be what they call disrupted by AI tools. And disrupted meant, you know, either significantly reduce the workload, change the workload in some way, you know, consolidate workload into other people. Like that's how many folks are sort of on the chopping block. And not not necessarily that they're going to get fired, but that that their jobs are going to change. Sure. And so I kind of want to just, let's just, dip our toe in this AI pool for a second and kind of ask you one, how are the tools changing that you've seen and how will that maybe affect how this kind of work gets done in the future? And, and maybe the expectation too of like what people think is, is realistic. I'm going to add one more thing onto that is like going back to, you know, your teaching, how do you approach teaching what's to come? Give us all the answers, Jeremy. Gig. Yeah, Tell yeah. If you could everything. just, and you know, we only have like thirty <laughs> seconds, so if you could. <laughs> no, those are great questions. I don't mind dipping my toe. In fact, I love diving into this stuff. Yeah. So I guess I'll start by saying, you know, it would be irresponsible of me to say like I know everything about all of the tools that are available right now. You know, I I don't. I know some, and I think that's a useful thing to acknowledge whenever we talk about AI generally is that you know new tools are being developed all the time in industry in academia and so what's true today might not be true tomorrow literally tomorrow you know right. so for me uh i do feel like i have a little like unique perspective as a teacher too yeah it's actually kind of interesting a couple years ago in in our university whenever chat gpt came out i forget exactly when that was about a year year and a half yeah yeah Everybody yeah. flipped out. I mean, society mm. flipped out, but academics in particular mm. flipped out, right? Right. It was an existential threat to everything in higher ed, right? Mm. At least the traditional areas of higher ed. I'm talking about disciplines in which when you take classes, you're writing papers and essays and, and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. And there were all these meetings and all these symposia and all these kind of op-eds and and people talking about it, trying to think, well, what do we do? How do we how do we teach when we can't trust that our students are writing their own papers? Right. There's no way to tell anymore. Right. You know, it was really focused on solutions and and, um, you know, detection and things like that. And for me, it was kind of interesting because by that point in time, things like Midjourney and Dolly had been out for several years. And I was thinking to myself, why wasn't anybody freaking out in academia when these things were were coming out? Like, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. we've adapted already in the visual arts, right? We know how to right. deal with this already uh, to some degree. So for me, it was about like adapting to make my my pedagogy, which is a fancy way of saying like how you teach, right? Mm-hmm. Focusing my pedagogy more on process rather than product, right? And that's something that I right. think we should do right. anyway 
in all fields, right? Yes. Focus more on how you do a thing and how you learn to do a thing rather than the thing itself, right? I think that would be also a healthy thing for society, but that's a different discussion. <laughs> <laughs> so um, kind of back to like the, the meat of the question. I do think though, to, to be honest, it is a little easier for visual artists to adapt to AI in that regard because this current state of artificial intelligence like generative AI tools, they are really good at generating pixels, right? At least the com commercially available ones, right? They're really good at generating pixels, final, final imagery that's meant to be, you know, basically take my job, right? Produce that seamless visual effect. Um, they're good at that to a, to a point, right? I think the current state of those tools can take things up to like 90 or 95%. And then you still kind of need a human. It depends on the level of work you're trying to do. If it's feature film, you need a person to fill in that last little blank. If it's a commercial, yeah, maybe you can stop there and get away with it, right? Mm. But it's that last 5% that is kind of the most time consuming and challenging. And the problem with these tools is they don't show their work, right? Mm. They don't save those intermediate steps. It's like when you're in grade school and your teacher doesn't give you credit for the right answer if you didn't show your work right? Um, division, long division, yes, yes. long division, I think. Yeah, right. Long division. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so these tools, they're not, they're not keeping track of the intermediate steps that a human would be, would need to, to go through, right? They just skip to the end right. because, you know, they can do that. They're designed, they work differently than a, than a human does. And so that becomes problematic. So if you're a, if you're a director, if you're a producer, a creative, whatever, and you use a tool like this and you say, that's awesome. That's great. Perfect. I love it. Absolutely. The way it is. Don't change a thing. But can you turn that dog into a cat? Or <laughs> can you can you like change that rumple on the clothing so that it's, it's smooth instead of wrinkled, right? Mm. Little things like that where, yes, maybe they're depending on which generative AI tool you're using, it can do things like that, right? But if you're not, um, or if you didn't start out with that tool, you might need a human to fill in that last little blank. And if they can't go back right. and and kind of take the work from an earlier state and then continue it, then that work is almost unusable, right? The stuff that the AI tool made. I've encountered that before, right? Not necessarily in an AI context, but it was, we got some shots from an editorial team and the editorial team had used a, a morphing and blending filter or feature in Avid and it worked well, right? But when you really looked and dug into the, into the imagery, you could, you could see the edges, the, you could see the imperfections, right? So they, they asked us, can you finish this look, right? And of course we said yes, because compositors and visual effects artists say yes to everything, right? Um, it turns out it was very challenging work, very mm -hmm. challenging work that the, that the tool, the filter did a really good job of taking up to that 95%. But what we found when we actually had to do the work to the standard that they were requiring, we had to start from scratch, right? Mm -hmm. And all of that work that they had done was good reference for what they wanted, 
but we had to take it from zero all the way to the end, right? I I feel like let me just pause you there, but I feel like that happens often in VFX. I, I remember being on commercials and saying like, "Oh, I, we just have to do this over again." Yep. And there's a lot of times mm-hmm. where an artist or a team of people will go through and 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 have to redo that. Is that am I am I? No, you're you're 100 right. Yeah. I have another example that, from Paul Blart All Cop too. Sure. <laughs> <gasps> I was going to circle this back at some point. I'm glad you yeah. did. Yes. So, yeah, it didn't involve AI, but it was a it was the the part in that film when the character Paul Blart is in like a courtyard with a guy playing a piano and there's a bird. I can't remember what kind of bird it is, but it's like a fancy looking bird with a, with a long tail. And it's kind of this silly scene where he he gets in a fist fight with the bird, right? And the the way they shot it was with a puppet. Um, and so they had Kevin James and maybe a stunt double, I can't remember, um, in all of these shots, basically fighting with, you know, strangling and punching and, and, and uh, interacting with this puppet bird that was being manipulated with these poles. And the, the, the team that was operating the puppet, it was like three or four people wearing, they had basically like duct taped panels of green paper. <laughs> <laughs> right. And the idea yes. was yes. that, um, the idea was that we would be able to pull, it's called pulling a key on a green screen, right? Mm-hmm. The idea was we would be able to use that green screen to isolate the puppet bird. Right. <laughs> and go from there. Uh, it, it turns out that that methodology did not really work very well for the vast majority <laughs> of those shots. So most, no of the, yeah, no most of the final imagery, not all, but most of the final imagery you see in that film is a combination of of the real bird and a, a completely replaced uh, computer generated bird that had to be modeled, mm-hmm. shaded lit, animated, uh, all those things by, by artists. And we also had to digitally replace the environment as well, because it turns out, you know, having those guys in the background, green screen or no, right. They were obscuring all of the, the background. Right. Um, and so we had to reproduce that courtyard as well. Uh, so yeah, it was almost, almost a complete fabrication. (laughs) <laughs> right. Um, but when you look at the, at the scene, you, you know, you don't question it too hard. You can't tell. Yeah. I think that's a, a that's awesome. there's been a term um, on LinkedIn that I've seen uh, thrown around and some folks have been calling it hidden or invisible VFX, things that you just don't know are there. And oftentimes when it's a, when it's a business or a company and they're running a commercial or a spot, 30 second spot, 60 second, whatever it is, all of those VFX artists who are working on that, like the final person at the other end can't tell that it wasn't shot in France or it wasn't, you know, like the background wasn't that thing. I remember doing working on some, um, that you mentioned ocean spray, ocean spray had like this whole thing about the, the guys being inside of the berries, like inside of the cranberries and like, all the cranberries were fake. Like it was a whole huge like yeah. set extension, you know? Right. So it's just interesting that, you know, I just, I guess I just want to put that out there that that's, that's often what's happening in, and and at least the marketing world uh, of folks. Sure. Yeah. I was talking with someone recently about how 
I, especially because you're in a teaching position, that it's really wonderful to have the ability to like show and explain why something is not real. Mm. Because in our day and age of things becoming questionable to be like, is this real? Is this not? It's really helpful to have an expert on your side that can be like, oh no, it's not real. Here's why it's not real. Here's how it was made. Like here, And I, I think it does something to, in a way, to our psyche to be like, okay, now we now I'm going to watch something else and I'm going to like have this sort of like healthy dose of skepticism a little bit. But yeah, I just think that's a really interesting position to be in as a teacher. Yeah. I like to call it critical seeing, you know, when mm. you have mm. critical thinking or critical reading in, in other types of classes. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a skill to being able to critically see the images that you're looking at. And I don't think it takes, you know, expertise in in computer graphics or visual effects to be able to do that it it takes the same kind of reading and thinking skills that you know we we already place we rightfully place a lot of importance on right and even but even beyond that you know i think just going back to critical thinking skills a lot of that question a lot of that uncertainty about oh is that real you know when we see or even here you know, there was this uh, this mm-hmm. scandal about in, I believe, New Hampshire, uh, robocalls from a fake Joe Biden, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, it's about never trusting a single source of information, right? Mm. Corroborate. This yeah. is what journalists do. This is what mm. we should all do. You shouldn't really be taking any one thing for granted. If something doesn't seem right, it it probably isn't right and corroborate it with other pieces of information from different from from different angles from different sources what's it called provenance right in the art world you know the the high fine art world uh, when they're valuing pieces when they're valuing works of art a big part of that is is discovering the provenance of that piece mm-hmm. and basically that means you know researching like it, the chain of custody the the context of the piece, the artist figuring out when it was made, where it was made, how it was made, materials. And, you know, that's how they identify fakes sometimes. It's like, well, this couldn't possibly be right. a whatever Monet if uh, because, you know, we chemically analyzed this paint and that paint didn't exist in whatever year, mm. you know. So <laughs> right. I think. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I think that's the work we need to do as a as a culture is to not simply just blindly trust every pixel that we see. I think that's fair. And I think that goes back to a little bit to like even a client that's going to purchase some type of visual effects or some types of animation, like doing it, it's, there is a good in trying to get multiple quotes from yeah. different places to see what their, how their processes work and what their approach is and how they justify the price of what they're doing. Like just to be able to get a better understanding to make your most informed decision. So yeah, I think that's yeah. a really great way to, Absolutely. especially, yeah. especially as the tools get, you know, more, advanced i mean i feel like a lot of folks are leveraging these tools in the sales pipeline right Mm. to say well we can Mm -hmm. just use gen ai to do xyz Mm. and for some reason you know that'll lower the cost x amount but it might not actually (laughs) yeah uh, yeah it's no easy quick fix yeah Yeah. you know again it really it comes back to what your goals are right 
if your goal is to you know generate a click after a three second exposure to something then i'll own up to the fact that yeah you could probably save some cash using right. some library or some ai tool to to do that but if your goal is to you know like i keep coming back to create this kind of visually seamless experience for your viewer then you should go into it knowing that those tools will probably not get you where you need to go you know yeah yeah right i think my last yeah, yeah the last question i have is um you know if someone wanted to be able to connect with you or they want to be able to go watch paul blart's <laughs> model cop 2 is that streaming now on Peacock? Well, yeah. or, I don't know. I, I, don't know I, I have no idea where any of the films <laughs> that I worked on exist anymore. Yeah. <laughs> That's not, that wasn't my department. But um, <laughs> my website is therealjdb.com. I am on LinkedIn. Those are great places to, to get in touch with me, to learn more about my work. So yeah, I'm, I'm on there. You can connect with me, write me messages. I check that uh, most of the time, so awesome awesome yeah. yeah thank you so yeah. much for taking the time and like sharing your insights i felt like i i got a little bit of a lesson as well which was wonderful <laughs> great yeah awesome yeah well thank you so much for having me it was it was a pleasure i love talking to you guys all the time oh, yeah. and yeah this was great this was cool well, definitely, uh, we're we're still on the road. We're we're uh, heading to ABQ. We will be um, awesome. yeah, we'll be back in Colorado at some point, and uh, we'll see you then. So, Colorado's on our yeah. list. So Fantastic. excited! Yeah, definitely hit awesome. me up. Yeah, we'll do. <laughs> cool, Thank man. you. All right. Thanks again to Jeremy Brown and the University of Colorado Denver for lending his time to us. Um, we really yes. appreciate it. It was a wonderful conversation, um, and uh, we'll see you in the next episode. A big thank you as always to eMedia for producing this podcast. Our producer is Jackson Foote. Our music is created by Hidden and licensed through premiumbeat.com. And as always, stay honest, stay creative, stay open. Open Pixel Studios. Thanks. We'll see you in the next episode. Connecting your friends. <laughs> Don't you dare edit this. You, you put this in our bonus, our bonus thingy. LinkedIn. Jeremy Brown. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead.